Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Kittler. And this is episode 28 in our series for 2016. And today's date is Friday, the 12th of August. And Leon, we've got Suresh Pillay of Fresh Desk um, in the interview this week. That's right. Suresh Pillay talks about how his company, Fresh Desk, offers customers support solutions. And that actually helps companies interact with customers across all channels, including social and mobile. Yeah, very handy and economical way to run a business. That's, that's right. And after that, we have an interview with economist Nicholas Gruen. He has certain views about the RBA's strategies, and they're not very good. Uh, no, <laughs> he's a bit worried about all the interest rates and how slow we've been that's in right. cutting them. That's right. Anyway, let's listen to uh, Shuresh and um, Fresh Desk. We started by asking Shrilesh to list some of the clients he has. It's a very impressive list. So some of them include Honda, uh, well, 3M companies, well, education companies like uh, the, the University of Pennsylvania, uh, The Atlantic from the media, Hugo Boss, and in specific to Australia, there's Harvey Norman, Randstad, Movember. So, so quite, quite a, a, a varied list of customers there. Now, in terms of the software, do you actually manage it or do they manage it? Oh, yeah. So, so that's the beauty of the cloud, yeah? So uh, we host the software for the customer. The customer has no reason to be setting up servers or setting up people to be managing the software. It's, it's letting them do what they need to, which is supporting their customers and not supporting the software that they need to be using. So, yeah, it's all cloud-based. We provide updates to this software, we host the software, uh, maintenance, uh, well, well, the whole works with regards to, you know, having successful software and, and let the business focus on, on their customers instead. And this is solidly all online in the cloud so that there's no infrastructure in, say, Harvey Norman. Yes, absolutely. You nailed it, uh, Gary. So now you've been going, Fresh Desk has been going in the US for some time, hasn't it? Uh, how long have you been working into Australia before you set up uh, the local business, local office? So I, I joined uh, Fresh Desk uh, early on. So I, I was their first marketing and, and sales hire. So we launched Fresh Desk in 2010. We had quartered it out of San Francisco. And uh, so it was basically San Francisco and Chennai. So uh, the two offices launched in 2010. And right from day one, we were global. In fact, the very first customer that Freshdesk had was Atwell College from Perth, which is Australian. So yeah, uh, in terms of, you know, uh, setting up offices in Australia, that's been a year old now. But uh, we were always global from day one, including our very first customer from Australia. So uh, with regards to other offices globally, there's uh, most recently an office in Berlin. Uh, there's one in London, uh, San Bruno and Chennai, apart from Sydney. Yeah. So taking the local example with uh, Harvey Norman or Movember, um, they would be the voices on the line or they'd be the text on the chat rather than Fresh Desk itself, wouldn't they? Absolutely. So Harvey Norman, they've got their own customer support reps. They've got their own uh, people who are sitting behind either, uh, you know, chat or, or maybe the, the website forms. You know, there'd be website contact forms. So the team there, uh, they probably, uh, you know, uh, support their customers. But the software that they use to manage these interactions via the form is through Freshdesk. Tell me, I mean, how, uh, what does uh, software actually do that... Uh traditional customer support doesn't do yeah so uh, right from day one when we began so it was it, it was two things like so so one is we wanted to be a hundred percent on the cloud 
And the other was we wanted to be multi-channel from day one. When I say multi-channel, it's about, uh, you know, it's not just traditional email and phone. So, so customers today are reaching out via Twitter, Facebook, sometimes ranting out over f- community forums. So Freshness from day one wanted to be that multi-channel system that would bring all these interactions that customers would choose, you know, wherever they, they prefer. So, so when customers reach out over phone or email or Twitter, Facebook, uh, community, to forums, maybe a website chat. So Freshdesk is different in the sense it brings all of these interactions, regardless of the channel, into one box so that customer service teams inside uh, you know, various organizations mm-hmm. have the complete 360 degree view of the customers. You know, customers don't end up repeating themselves. I reached out to a Twitter. I reached out to a blah, blah. So the customer support rep has everything that they need right there on one screen. Well, this, this is a beautiful part. So that means that the, custom, that the customer, like a Harvey Norman, doesn't necessarily need a social media manager to monitor what's being said about them on Twitter because it's all coming in on through Freshdesk. Uh, they might need a social media manager, but in terms of the customer service standpoint, if they've got someone who's who's reaching out for help, so the customer service teams can see this person. But the social media manager would probably need, you know, have a lot more going for him. For example, he'd want to know, uh, you know, what, what's the positive mentions about Harvey Norman over the past one month versus the previous month. So there's more marketing involved. While anything support related, anything help related, customer service teams have a fresh test to be on top of. So how scalable is all this really? So I mean, Harvey Norman is uh, pretty big. It's got uh, a lot of stores around the place and big warehouses. But what about somebody like a an online store that might have pretty good turnover, but it's pretty small. In fact, you know, 10 or 20 people. Can yeah. they, they get into your area? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, to be honest, so, so Freshdesk, a 60 percentage of our customer base is small and medium businesses. And I suppose that's the benefit of the cloud. It, it's scalable. So the way we price is based on support reps using the software. Yeah, So it's not limited in terms of the number of customers that a business can support, nor is it limited in terms of the number of tickets that you can use the system for. It's really the number of people who are managing customer service. So uh, you'd have businesses who have support members, let's say three support members who can use Freshdesk and the other end of the spectrum, you know, a Harvey Norman or a 3M who could probably have hundreds of support, you know, staff using Freshdesk. So absolutely Absolutely scalable, not just in terms of, of uh, price seats, but also, you know, uh, the maturity of a customer service team. For example, today, uh, you know, an, a, a budding startup would probably need something that would uh, help them manage email communication. And then you know, a, a month down the line, three months down the line, when the product and service is all ready, they slowly want to expand that customer service into social media. So not just in terms of, of price factor, but also the modes of support as the customer service teams mature into bigger uh, teams, be, be it including social media or, or website chat. So Freshdesk is able to scale for these growing businesses. So through the system, through the Freshdesk system, you can have audio connection like a phone call. You could have text chat. Uh, where's it going beyond that? You, would you ever get into the area of being able to actually see, have a video link between a customer and a, a support person? Absolutely. So uh, Fresh. 
Lyftdesk, over the past uh, year and a half, we've acquired five companies, of which one is OneClick.io. So uh, this is a capability that we're very soon going to be bringing inside Freshdesk. So if there's a customer who'd like to, you know, immediately start a video chat through the Freshdesk platform, the, the customer service rep can be able to do that. But by the way, we already integrate with Google Hangouts. So if, if you have got a customer who's, use, who's, who's, who's using a Google domain and has Hangout enabled, a customer support rep could actually start a, a Hangout right there from the ticketing system, Freshdesk, with the customer. But we're going beyond this, not just limiting it to Google Hangout, but we're having our own, you know, we're integrating OneClick.io into Freshdesk so that this ability is there regardless of, you know, what what channel what device the end customer is using so it's also platform agnostic isn't it you can use as you say google hangout or you could use a facetime or a skype or something like that absolutely so so uh, while while facetime is yet to be included in the product so so uh, now here's the beauty of it right so Unless the customer has a FaceTime, he'd not be able to to chat with the customer support rep. But what we're going to do is integrate solutions inside Freshdesk, which would enable a video hangout regardless of what the customer is using. He'd probably just need an internet browser. Yeah, and that, that's the ideal thing. You're totally agnostic and yeah. a good connection all the way, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's I, I guess that's the benefit of the cloud. And, and today, you know, with an internet connection and the internet browser, businesses are, are, are able to do tremendous uh, well uh, gains out of uh, out of just sitting there from one particular office so how does the pricing work Trulesia? you is it a lease of your uh, infrastructure how does yes. it work so it, it's really based on the number of people using the software so if there's a three member support team you'd, you'd probably have uh, uh, you know maybe 45 dollars a month which is either uh, we've got multiple plans so you've got plans starting from 50 dollars a support user per month to all the way up to $70 a support user a month, depending on the the, the plan that you choose. And, and that is uh, dependent on the capabilities that your service teams would need. If they, if they need social media presence, so you go into the $16 plan. If you're a business that needs multiple you know brands, you're supporting multiple brands, which, which is probably like a Harvey Norman, you go up, you choose a bigger plan, which is maybe $40 per support rep per month but but it's really from 15 to 70 per support rep per month so that i mean that's well within the uh, ability of a small business isn't it yes yes absolutely and and the, the beauty is a small business probably have three support staff so they only play for these three and, and as this same small business scales you know grows their team into 10 members into 20 members they've got the same freshness system that would you know bring all these multiple communication channels and, and really when you look at it this is capability that enterprise companies today have with bigger players such as Oracle, right? And and, and now it's all, you, you could say we're democratizing this customer support experience, professional customer support experience. So regardless of the size of a business, they've got these systems in place to, to, to grow and uh, provide professional customer service to their customers. Trilesh, thank you very much for your time. It's been fascinating. And I guess there's a whole lot of developments uh, yet to come in this area. Yeah, yeah. So so uh, there's a lot. We've just begun, you know, uh, in Australia. We're 5,000 customers strong, but but really there, there, there are millions of small, medium businesses out there. And, and uh, we're looking forward to serving this region, you know, to the best of our abilities. Great. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Gary Leon. 
Well, there you are. You know, services. The service industry is really growing, isn't it? I think, yeah, and I think it's really interesting what Freshdesk is doing because they're doing it across all channels, social and mobile, and that's really important. Yeah, indeed, and mobile probably more important than any of it. Okay, and now Nick Gruen. The RBA bought in a rate cut last week, and uh, as far as you're concerned, it's a bit case of too little, too late. Correct. So I think I might have mentioned to you on this uh, on this podcast a few months ago. I've been pretty frustrated with the Reserve Bank. Uh, we seem uh, our response to almost all of this stuff is to sit sit around and say how great it is that we haven't had a recession in uh, 25 years. That's truly a great achievement, but. Uh, we're now observing a world in which we're slowly sliding into economic stagnation. And uh, I think we should be acting much more vigorously, given that we still have ammunition. Uh, we should be, or we should have cut interest rates much more aggressively. And we should, uh, we should have done so on, having not done that, we should have done so on Tuesday. So where does that leave us now? With some ability to cut, which we haven't used, which we should use. Right, right. So how far down do you see interest rates going? Uh, Well, there are two questions. One is how far they should go, and the other is how far the bank will, by the seat of its pants, move the rates, and they're very different questions. I would have liked to have seen interest rates in Australia somewhere near zero, as they are in other markets. Uh, and the lower exchange rate would have, would I would have hoped by now, see us on an up, moving rates up. In other words, see growth having, you know, see our economy having grown quite a bit faster in the last couple of years, uh, and then perhaps now we would be in a position to lift them. Uh, that's a long way from where the that's a long way from the Reserve Bank's thinking. Uh, and the thinking of most of the respectable opinion. So I don't expect to see anything like that happen. Can you see us? Uh, want to see us moving into something like negative rates? Uh, well, if we ha- if we have to, I mean, what we know about. Uh, well, well, I, I suppose there are two questions. One is QE, quantitative easing, where banks go out and buy and, and basically print money and then buy, uh, you know, low low risk assets from usually from banks. And the other is going to negative interest rates. Both of them have their limits, as we've found out. I, I guess negative rates. We've been we've surprised a little that we've been able to get away with neg- that, that some uh, central banks or some governments have been able to get away with negative rates. Obviously, you can't go very low with negative rates because people will just hoard cash on which there's a zero rate. Uh, but yeah, I don't I don't see any great taboo. We I don't think we should have any great taboos on either. But it's much better to try as vigorously as you can to avoid that world because that world, as we are seeing, is a very difficult world to get out of. Well, the issue is, though, that, I mean, Japan is one country that's had close to zero rates. It's now at negative rates, and uh, there's been no sign of pickup in the Japanese economy at all. So uh, what good would cutting interest rates do? Well, you better ask Phil Lowe. Uh, you better ask the Reserve Bank. Why do you think they cut rates last Tuesday? So, so we get these two stories. When they don't want to cut rates, they say, "Oh, well, we're very low. We're at very low rates, and you know, it won't have much effect." And then they feel forced to cut the rate, and then they say, "Here we are. We've cut the rate." 
So obviously it has an effect. It's likely to have its largest effect probably via the exchange rate, which is exactly the effect we want. We want to move resources out of, um, you know, we've had a huge amount of resources investing in our mining sector and that's what all of that's come off. And we want uh, resources to go into exports of services and manufacturers elsewhere and so on. And um, the way to do that is is have a lower exchange rate than we've had. After all, it was massively overvalued during the boom. That's done some damage to our industry structure. Uh, and uh, so I, I can't see what there, what is there not to like about having a lower exchange rate. My question, though, is that uh, the Japan cut its uh, cut its rates to zero and negative, and uh, that did nothing for their exchange rate. So. Uh, well, no, they, they've been uh, they, their economy's been stagnating for twenty odd years. Uh, so, so yes, I mean, it's not it, it's perfect. It, this is what I was saying. Once you get to ne- to zero and negative rates, you're in a world in which to use the Use the expression people tend to use in this in this context that you, in which you're pushing on a string. So that's true. So so th- there's difference between this is kind of my message that if you reluctantly cut all the way down to zero, you find you can find yourself in an awful mess. When if you aggressively cut to zero at a time when that really surprises the markets. Uh, you're much more likely to have an impact. Then, having had an impact, people will invest and so on, and uh, you people will start spending, start investing, and you hopefully are in a world in which the low level of demand is a temporary thing which you've managed to nip in the bud, and you're now in a much more normal world in which interest rates are are expected to be positive into the future. Uh, The RBA cut rates last week, and our dollar is now up around 76 cents. It's had absolutely no impact on the currency, and exactly the stock market actually closed a bit lower last week. Yeah, yeah, well, that's right, and that's all about expectations and so on. So what that tells you, uh, insofar as we want to interpret this as a a clear signal of anything, because, of course, there's always a lot of noise in these things, but insofar as it can be rationalized as a clear signal of anything it is a signal that the that the bank cut by less than the market expected that's not i mean i haven't put that very well but you take my point that these cuts are uh, that that your movement of policy is measured against expectations uh, so uh, so that's all built in. I can, I'd can, i be pretty confident that if we cut by three quarters of a percent last week, that our exchange rate would be quite a bit lower. And that's essentially what you want. And in a sense, the fact, the very fact that you've, you, th- that very fact that you've rehearsed is in some sense a KPI, in some sense a commentary on how successful last week's action was and it's saying it wasn't successful. And now uh, Philip Lowe has gone on the record saying he doesn't he thinks uh, cutting interest rates has less of an impact once you round about 1%. Uh, what's your <laughs> yeah, view about that? Oh, look, I didn't read much into that. I, I had a look at the context in which it was used. I can't quite remember it now, but it just struck me as, uh, you know, these banks, th- th- these guys say things that sort of, there's a fair bit of rhetoric in this. By rhetoric, I, I, I guess I mean something a bit... Uh, uh, subtle, but 
but I, I see these guys, um, you know, there are a whole lot of arguments you can use to support a wage, a, 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 an interest rate cut. There are a whole lot of arguments you would use to support an interest rate rise and you use some mix of those to, depo- to, to support not changing rates. And, uh, you know, they kind of mix and match. I'm not suggesting it's as, it's as capricious or as um, uh, lacking in content as that. But, you know, if you're saying, you, for instance, take the example of the housing market. So the bank has publicly agonised about the effects of lower interest rates on the housing market. Uh, it's also... I think fairly happy with the things that APRA have done to try and take some heat out of the housing market. There's contrary evidence on the housing market. The annual numbers on the housing market suggest that growth in Melbourne and Sydney has been strong. Uh, Some more recent data on credit growth suggests that investors have come off. So that's the data that they choose to quote in justifying their cuts. It's, you know, it's, um, it, I don't find it very satisfying. Let's, let's put it that way. I'm not suggesting they're being, you know, very dishonest or, or anything like that. But this, this sort of shopping list approach, it used to be called a checklist approach in a somewhat different context. I find this way too full of improvisation and justification after the event. Uh, as I see it, the bank has been kind of forced into cutting rates reluctantly, and then it produces these arguments to justify it. And I, I really, I just don't find myself convinced by the, um, by the arguments they use, and they simply haven't addressed many of the kinds of ideas that I've put before you uh, right now. So in, in effect, the, you're saying the RBA has been pretty much flying by the seat of the pants. I've said that in the past. And, and in a sense... I don't want to suggest you can do anything but that. I mean, this is, I don't want to suggest that this is not full of judgment and, and, and really improvisation. But the Reserve Bank has about 200 people stuff, and they could have released some models. They could have said, well, you know, here's the arguments that I've been putting to you. Here are the arguments we're using about the need, you know, the undesirability of having low interest rates at least of us cutting interest rates here is a here is some modeling and this modeling suggests that we're right and and Nicholas Gruen and people who agree with him are wrong now no neither of us know whether you know I don't know if I'm right and they don't know if they're right but that would be a much more useful thing to do than you know kind of feel somehow pressured into cutting rates and then come up with a list of reasons why it's kind of really okay on this occasion Nicholas Gruen thank you very much for your time thanks Leon so how do you read that? Well, yeah, the central banks are all very powerful now, aren't they? All over the world. That's right, yeah, and partly because we, we kind of have given up not depending on them in a way. Although I have to add that uh, Glenn Stevens gave his final address yesterday in Sydney and he said there's, not, there's very limited ground for what central banks can actually do. A lot of it will have to come from government. Yeah, I think that's right. But then as Nick says, you can drop the interest rates, you can even go to zero, but you've got to do it early. So there's some effect. That's right. And we we missed the bus. Exactly. And uh, now the news, Leon. First of all, Chinese exports have seen a further decline in July, adding to concerns over the global economic outlook. Exports fell by 4.5%. 
4% compared to a year earlier, a slight improvement over June's 4.8% drop, but it's still worse than analysts expected. At the same time, consumer prices in China grew less rapidly in July as increases in food and costs abated, and that gives authorities more room to ease monetary policy in the world's second largest economy. Uh, China's consumer price index rose 1.8% year over year in July. That's down from 1.9% in June. And this was the third consecutive month that the key inflation measures lost speed, uh, putting it further below the government's 3% ceiling for the year. So they're really having a lot of issues with deflation there. Yeah, and that adds to the anxiety over the size of the Chinese debt. It's enormous. Absolutely. We don't really know how big it is. Absolutely, and it keeps getting bigger and bigger. Well in the trillions. That's right. Now, Treasurer Scott Morrison says national security will be a key focus in any decision on selling Ausgrid, which is the nation's biggest electricity security grid to a Chinese consortium. Now, Mr. Morrison said a decision on selling a 50, uh, 50.4 stake in Ausgrid for $10 billion, basically giving the Chinese a 99-year lease on half of the major New South Wales power distribution network, which supplies more than 1.6 million homes and businesses in New South Wales. He says it's imminent. Now, the deal is critical for the Baird government, which had a platform in last year's New South Wales election promising to use sale proceeds to fund the state's biggest infrastructure building program since the Sydney Olympics in 2000. Now, the two Chinese bidders, the state-owned State Grid Corporation and Xing Kong Infrastructure Group, which is registered in Hong Kong and part-owned by billionaire Li Keqing, are waiting for clearance from the Foreign Investment Review Board. Now, Mr Morrison said former ACO Chief David Irvine had been appointed to the FIRB Board to help identify security threats. And the decision is politically contentious, Gary, because it comes after the controversial lease of Darwin's port to a Chinese-owned company, the government approving the Kimberley Ords cattle station sale before the election, and the rejection of the sale of a Kidman cattle, cattle properties over security concerns. And concerns about the sale have already been raised by One Nation leader, newly elected Senator Pauline Hanson, South Australian uh, Senator Nick Xenophon and Independent MP Bob Catter. My reading of it is they won't approve it. They, um, absolutely not. Are you? Hanson, Xenophon, uh, too much, and Catter, too much. I think, yeah, I think they are really, really nervous about it. Which, of course, is going to upset New South Wales no end. That's right. Because I don't know how they'd fund their infrastructure. Uh, it also goes to the issue of foreign investment in Australia and where, where it's going to come from. Now... I have to say, Gary, the Turnbull government now faces an almighty struggle to pass a centrepiece election policy, the 10-year plan for company tax cuts through Parliament and achieve other big policy reforms, thanks to the large Senate crossbench. If Labor and the Greens block legislation in the Senate, the government will need the support of nine of 11 crossbenchers to pass its bills, more than it required in the last Senate. And that means... That means it will need the support of the Nick Xenophon and Pauline Hanson voting blocks, plus two others. And for the first phase of the government's $50 billion company tax cuts, which is the heart of the government's jobs and growth agenda, would reduce taxes for businesses with a turnover up to $10 million a year. Taxes would continue to be cut over for even larger businesses until 2026-27, when all businesses would pay 25% tax. Now, Labor and the Greens only support tax cuts for smaller businesses. Senator Xenophon says he supports the tax cuts for businesses worth up to 10 million. Ms. Hansen has indicated she supports small business tax cuts but remains unconvinced about the tax for large big business. And Jackie Lambie says big business tax cuts would benefit foreign shareholders rather than Australians. So I think they've got a big problem. That's right. Look, I don't think I don't think it's going to get through and uh, that's going to have enormous implications for this government. Well, yeah, and for business generally because it'll just turn people off. That's right. That's right. But this 
this was a centrepiece of the government's election platform. Yeah. So anyway, the ANZ job advertisement series shows job advertisements fell by 0.8% in July, the first decline since April, and it might reflect heightened uncertainty. Annual growth in job ads has slowed to 6.9%. That's down from 8% the previous month. And that has implications for the employment figures looking forward. Cutting interest rates to a record low 1.5% last week had a muted impact on consumers, according to the Westpac Melbourne Institute Index of Consumer Sentiment. The latest figures show the index increased by just 2% from 99.1% in July to 101% in August. Now that compares to the really impressive figure of 8.5% from 95.1% to 103.2% in May when the RBA cut interest rates from 2% to 1.75%. I reckon there are some reasons for that. One reason is that the May interest rate cut came as a complete surprise. And whereas this time there was a lot of media speculation about one coming up. Secondly, the banks back in May passed on the full full. 0.25 basis point. And also, there was more, still more room anyway. That's right. But this time, the banks didn't cut on, pass on the, pass it on. No. And, and of course, said, well, you, you can't do that because we're trying to do a balance, which is what Ian Narev was saying on the box the other night. That's right. Now, ASX-listed commercial property group Dexus has sold the iconic Southgate complex in Melbourne for five. $178 million. Now, South Bank, Southgate is located on the Yarra River opposite the CBD. It covers 76,600 square metres in total, taking landmarks like A-grade office buildings, the HWT Tower, an ABM centre, a three-level retail plaza and a basement car park. Now, Dexas didn't identify the buyer, but media reports it's Singapore-listed ARA Asset Management. And backed by Hong Kong tycoon billionaire Li Ka-shing, ARA has more than $30 billion in property and assets in the Asia-Pacific and the deal is still subject to Foreign Investment Review Board approval. But uh, $578 million, that's not a bad price for Southgate. Well, no, it's not. I, I would have thought it was pretty cheap, really. I think so. I think so. You I know, think so. No, just over half a billion for a really big complex. For and, and, and really, Right by the river. That's right. Now, life events like a compensation payment as a result of an accident and such windfalls as a divorce settlement, eligibility for a trust or lottery win, will be exempt from the government's proposed $500,000 lifetime cap on non-concessional superchargers. Treasurer Scott Morrison confirmed the change, which, while watering down the government's super package, placates the Liberal Party backbench. Now, the lifetime cap, which accounts for just $550 million out of the $6 billion super concession trackdowns that the government will put to the new parliament, has been attacked by backbenchers and Liberal Party supporters because it's backdated 2007 and it's deemed retrospective. Now, we've got to see whether that gets through the backbench and, for that matter, whether it will be supported by Labor. We're getting to the point where uh, there's not a lot of government going on. No. Now, Gary, finally, the profit season is in full swing and we have a whole lot of company reports this week. Now, Australia's biggest bank, Commonwealth Bank of Australia, posted a 3% increase in its full-year cash profit to 94 Five billion dollars. Oh, that's a record figure, Gary. Yeah, right at the time when uh, the banks are on the nose. That's right. Now, Fairfax Media posted an eight hundred ninety-three point five million dollar loss for two thousand sixteen, well down on the eighty-three point two million dollar profit last year. And they wrote down the value of their newspapers, including the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age, by nearly one billion dollars. That did most of the damage to the bottom line. AGL Energy posted a full year net loss of four hundred eight million, taking into account impairment charges related to the company's exit from gas exploration and production, and the result was down from a $280 million profit in 2015, but underlying profit for the year to June rose 11.3% to $701 million. 
ComputerShare posted a net profit of $157.3 million, that's US, in the year through to June, up 2% on the US $153.6 million figure a year before. Bendigo and Adelaide Bank reported a modest fall in its full-year earnings, down 2% to $415.6 million for the year to June. An underlying cash earnings rose 1.6% to $439.3 million. Australia's second-largest listed investment company, Argo Investment, reported a 5.2% side in profit to $216.3 million for the year through to June. Revenue there fell 5.7% over the period. Macquarie Media, which was created out of last year's merger of Fairfax Radio Network and Macquarie Radio Network, has delivered a profit after tax of 14.4 million dollars, which is pretty good. Pre-tax earnings before interest tax depreciation and amortization came out to 25.5 million and uh, revenue was 133.8 million. Now ANZ's cash profit, reflecting its underlying earnings for the first nine months of the financial year, fell 3% to 55.2 billion, with its earnings growth hit by bad debt charges, and net profit there fell 23% to 4.3 billion. And this in part reflected write-downs and restructurings the group took at its first half results, covering the six months to March. Cochlear's profit for the year to June surged 30% to 188.9 million for the year, and that's a 23% rise in revenue also to 1.58 billion. Transurban reported an after-tax profit of 22 million that's a big turnaround on last year's $373 million loss. And proportional toll revenue was 17.5% higher than last year at $1.95 billion, which is pretty good given it's a monopoly. Now, car sales reported earnings before interest tax appreciation amortization at $170.3 million. That's an up 10%. IOOF reported 42% rise in net profit of $196.8 million for the year through June. And underlying profit was $173.4 million in line with May guidance. REA Group reported its revenue is growing 20% to $629.8 million, with its earnings before interest tax appreciated and amortization up 22% to $347.3 million, and net profit growth of 16% to $214.5 million. News Corp's full-year earnings dropped about 28% to $684 million. That's about $894 million Aussie. That's down from US $945 million a year ago. But what's interesting is that its growth in real estate classifieds businesses failed to offset declines in news and book publishing. At the same time, though, News Corp swung to a US $179 million profit in the 12 months to June. That's up from a $147 million loss in the previous financial year. But profit from continuing operations fell 36% to $235 million. Now, most of this was attributed to a US $280 million charge in relation to a court settlement over alleged anti-competitive behavior from its News American marketing business. But what's interesting here is that digital real estate services was the only part of the business to report revenue growth. That rose 30, 32% on the year to $822 million. But revenue in the newspaper business fell 7% to US $5.3 billion. Yeah, I'm surprised it's um, not more. That's right. Now, Oz Minerals' net profit for the six months of June fell 43% to $29.5 million. That's down from $51.8 million a year ago. Underlying profit was up $55 million from $51.8 million the previous year. Bell Financial Group posted a net profit of $5.7 million. That was absolutely flat and in line with the same period from a year before. ASX-listed developer Pace Consolidated reported a 1.5% drop in profit after tax for the financial year to June 30 to $86 million and a 6% decrease in revenue to $378 million. That's down against last year's figure of $406 million. And that's it for this week, Gary. Good, Leon. It's, um, looking at those figures, um, the economy's not in terribly bad shape. No, some of those figures are pretty good. They are. 
That's right. And that's it for this week, Gary. And uh, next week we have Ben Fisterer, who's the Australian country manager of Square. Yep, and Square's very interesting. That's right, that's right. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBiz or on Facebook. Stay safe, and we look forward to talking to you next week.